Welcome to Micromobility, a podcast exploring the disruptive potential of lightweight utility vehicles. Using the history of computing as a framework, we examine how these technologies will upend everything we thought we knew about the future of urban transport. The host of the show is Horace Deju, founder of Asimco.com, and I'm his co-host, Oliver Bruce. All right, and welcome back to Micromobility, episode number 21. Except this time, uh, we, Horace, hey, how are you doing today, Horace? I'm well, thank you. Excellent. Uh, we, we're actually going to try and take uh, uh, all of the, the, the topics that we've been dealing with for the last 20 episodes um, and try and compress them down into what is effectively a top-line review of everything that we've discussed so far um, over the last, um, what has now been, what, six, seven months, uh, Horace? Um, and, and so what we, what the hope for this episode is, is that actually for our audience, listeners out there around the world who are interested in um, being able to share kind of one episode around why what micromobility is and why it matters, um, there'll be a kind of a distilled uh, version. And then what we'll do is we'll kind of point off to the various episodes um, if people want to go and dig in for more um, content on the, on the various things that we're discussing. So um, if you're new, welcome. Great to have you here. Um, hopefully, you'll find this interesting. And if you like what you hear, um, hopefully, you'll be able to go and check out the rest of our episodes. But um, I thought what we could do is we'll just dig in. But uh, I mean, we're really here in, in many ways because of Horace. And, and I thought maybe, Horace, what we could do is if you could just um, take us through who you are, what's your background, how, how do you come to be on the uh, on uh, dealing with micromobility? Well, I'll, I'll just focus on how it came to be on micromobility because the, the, the story of my life is too long. I am I'm much too old. Um, but the, uh, so the way I came to it, and, and this is kind of a, there's always a, there's sort of a creation myth, uh, although this is may, maybe more legend than myth, but what, what happened was I was, you know, in 2004 or five, oh, sorry, sorry, uh, 2014 or 15, I was doing, uh, I was at, at um, I started a SIM car, I started working on, uh, trying to understand the future of of car transportation by you know I was at the Christensen Institute so I was doing some research into what is possibly a way to predict what will happen to the auto industry based on disruption theory and so I looked at the what are now known as the case uh, uh, technologies which is communications automation uh, uh, service or or sharing. Uh, and uh, electric drive, and these were these were the the, the main candidates for disruptive technologies. Uh, and and when I looked at all of them, I didn't find anything that that seemed disruptive uh, by the definition of disruption. And and so I was a little bit right. frustrated, and I was I was disappointed. Um, and the way I said I tell the story, although my memory may not be perfect on this, but about late 2016, I. I, I came across uh, the e-bike uh, phenomenon in Europe, and I, I actually uh, had a, a met, sort of tried to tested an e-bike, and I was I was so impressed that I decided that this is the future, um, and it therefore for three years I did I did my own kind of research without a conclusion, but then I saw the e-bike and I said, oh wait, I've been looking in the wrong place. I've been looking at cars. I should be looking at something other than cars. And the, the other way to look at it is there's the, this case uh, uh, candidates, the CASE, are, are 
oh, about making better cars. And I, I, I realized that what we needed is, is something that makes worse cars. And, and that's what micromobility came into my head as, at that time as sort of the, the really low end of the car uh, or the transportation business is the bicycle and, and how that's going to evolve through electric drive, through technologies like um, uh, communications, actually, and, 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 uh, and, and it's becoming a service and, and shared. All the things that apply to cars, applying these to these micro vehicles. Um, it, that was what I was, uh, uh, I was smitten by. And, and again, that, this was before the Chinese bike sharing phenomenon hit big time. It's before scooters even existed and before the term micromobility existed. But micromobility as a word only came about in about mid, uh, mid 2017, around the summer when I, 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 I was asked to do a conference and I, I decided to call it the micromobility summit, which was the first event that we you know we attracted 30 people uh, so it was that was a very beginning awesome so so and then so take me through what did what if we were to ask that question what is micromobility how do you define it um and what is really its historical precedent well the the problem with the definition of something like this is that it's it can be either too broad or too narrow because if you if you think about small vehicles, they've existed as long as any vehicle has. In fact, the bicycle predates the automobile. And the, you know, it, arguably it's the 200-year-old technology. And, um, and it, it, there's nothing new about, about small vehicles. And we've had motorcycles, we've had mopeds, we've had three wheels and four wheels and quadricycles and every imaginable form of small, small vehicle. Um, but What's different about micromobility is that it enables, it's enabled by, I should say, um, technologies that weren't available even three years ago, which are very low cost um, communications, which you, were, were made possible because of the smartphone. Um, everyone having a smartphone is actually allowing it uh, allowing the service to be available to to a user, so you have the sharing capability. This is very recent uh, on on the small vehicles. Um, you know, on bigger vehicles, it might have been more possible, but you know, because the costs were were higher. But now the costs are so low, uh, it's possible to do this on a very microscopic scale. That's not that's one of the enabling technologies. It's really the smartphone, uh, GSM networks and 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 high speed cellular networks and very low power consumption that's necessary for small vehicles to do this, even if they don't have on board uh, massive batteries. Uh, the, the other enabling technology has been the uh, of course electric motors, but more particularly electric batteries, the batteries that we see from lithium ion, a technology that allows a battery to be embedded in a scooter or in the or in the bike, which gives it sufficient range and su sufficient torque to to propel a human being, for, you know, for for the types of urban distances that are most common, and and so, again, from an e-bike point of view, you have a, a, an object that looks like a bike, but it it has the ability to you know, go nearly as fast as a car in an urban environment without too much effort from the from the rider. So, you know, that got shrunk down to a to the to a, to the scooter as well. And and so that technology took many years. If you know if you think about all the evolution in, in motorized, you know, personal transport, um, you know, everything from the Segway to the 
uh, hoverboards to the the skateboards that were powered. This is you know something like boosted boards. Who introduced these concepts? All these were essentially stepping stones on the way to uh, to these electrified um, personal vehicles. So combination of those factors uh, on the network level, on the motorized level, on the communications level uh, has suddenly converged. All these things have converged to make possible a, a service plus product that potentially could really take a lot of the miles, the short distance miles away from alternatives and uh, hopefully mostly from the automobile as as it's not very efficient at low distances and low speeds and therefore you know it overserves that market so that that's where absolutely yeah so so if we had to like if we had to go right back to the sort of um you know in in one of in some of our early first episodes we went in and dug in and defined the sort of the key characteristics of what it is to be micromobility can we just run through those what are the what are the three things so again, the, 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 yeah, sorry for, for running on, but the, the observation is that you have these enabling technologies and then we, when you ask then, okay, well, how do we then differentiate micromobility from cycling? Well, the answer is typically that these are motorized vehicles. So it's not quite cycling. Cycling is still a great mode, but I don't think of it as micromobility uh, because it is essentially a much older legacy. There's nothing new uh, and we want to define micromobility as a, as, a, as a concept that's unique to this moment in time and has begun effectively in the last two years. Now, the, uh, the other question then is, well, if you can define micromobility as a bike or a scooter, what about three wheels? What about four wheels? What about something bigger? And we, I don't want to restrict the size of the vehicle because there are many, many concepts that could emerge. I've seen many prototypes about you know, having you uh, you know an enclosure, having roofs, have having the capability to really carry more people and cargo. All these things are possible with micromobility. So what I decided, in fact, is simply to draw a weight limit on the vehicle that is below, significantly below where the car can be. In other words, what is the lightest, smallest car you can think of, and let's put it below that point, and then that way we don't bump up against the car. Um, and so I, I chose this rather, I would say, arbitrary uh, uh, cutoff at 500 kilograms or half a ton, um, or you could argue, you know, 11, uh, 1,100 pounds, let's say, let's say the, the you know, uh, at that point. And, and so there are sure. no cars at that, at that weight. It's very difficult to engineer a car given its requirements as a car, its regulations as a car to be as light as 500 kilograms. And therefore that becomes our upper bound that's not to say that we'll see many vehicles at that high level, but, but you know, especially since bicycles are something like 15 kilograms and scooters are, are uh, you know, even even lighter. So you, you can imagine yeah. how much headroom there exists between, you know, 15 to 20 kilos all the way up to 500. That's where I think there's still a huge opportunity to evolve and, and, and really develop more and more concepts. Excellent. And so, so we can define it as being electric, functional, and the, in the sense of utility, and that it's sub five hundred kgs. Yeah, the third condition. So that, I think that's a real. Yeah. The third condition I, I, I you mentioned also this uh, function functional va- value is that I, I define it as being being primary use is utility, meaning that it's it's meant to it's meant to transport 
things as opposed to recreational, which which there are many vehicles which are light and and small and electric, but maybe maybe only for recreational use. And, and, and I, I'm thinking about, and this again varies by by many uh, in many regions. But, you know, snowmobiles, uh, ATVs, uh, golf cars, a lot of things which are not meant to really transport people uh, for you know tasks that they have to do, but, you know, are used for recreation. The reason I want to exclude those is because, again, that that is an existing market, is well-defined, but it isn't one which has, which easily crosses over into the problems we're trying to deal with on a, on a, you know, on the urban transport level. Absolutely. Cool. Okay. So, so, and then in terms of um, what are the other factors, you've talked about the modularized components, but what are the other factors that you think have kind of coalesced, um, to unleashing this rise of micromobility as you've as we've seen it. Well, I think we first of all, we, so we, the technology was made available really cheap. If you think about both e-bikes and and scooters, these have emerged very rapidly in Europe. We just had a huge growth in e-bikes in 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 North America. We've had a huge growth in scooters, <laughs> and this is one, just Ninebot alone produced 1.5 million scooters last year. This was their their production. And they were they were not able to meet demand at that at that level. In Germany alone, nine hundred thousand, so again, almost a million e-bikes were sold in one country alone. And all of Europe is probably closer to one point five million now, and and growing at twenty to thirty percent. These are really very very big jumps in 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 terms of the the global production of these electrified micro vehicles. Um, in, in in so the what's what made this possible is again the, the 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 cost reduction in lithium-ion batteries, the ability to access supply chains in China that can make these parts uh, in in huge quantities, and this is including you know the motors and the brakes and the the rubber wheels and all these other parts, um, and and so we've we've had this this unleashing of production capacity plus, and most importantly, I would add. The capital, the capital that has been released to fuel these business models, is been drawn from venture money, and in in China they sort of had micromobility zero, you know, version zero point one, which was the the shared uh, regular, you know, so called free float bike, uh, which 20, 20 million were built in one year, uh, and that was a, that was a, a huge bubble. Then we had the scooter phenomena now in the in the United States. And um, and these were both fueled by venture capital uh, on the order of billions of dollars, and that's not an ex- exaggeration. If you look at the uh, the companies involved, uh, they each received between four and five hundred, or actually three to five hundred million dollars each, uh, very very rapidly. Uh, that those rounds came together, uh, and those again that were fueled because what we saw is very early uh, ramping of usage. You, we saw in China, for example, 400 million people signed up to do bike sharing. Uh, 70 million uh, were doing it actively every day. Uh, in the U.S., we have now both Bird and Lime claiming to be, you know, about a million rides. Or this is actually a few months ago, uh, a million rides a week, which is uh, well yeah. uh, from zero to that level within one or two years. So when 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 uh, when these numbers were were uh, achieved. Uh, the capital, fl- uh, you know, flowed in in huge numbers, and and that fueled additional growth. Excellent. And so, from the, the the other thing as well, and this is 
just to add to that as well, I mean, I think the other thing that we're seeing is that the the rise of car, own, well, there's still an, a growing rate of car ownership and actually most cities are facing very increased or like very significant congestion. I don't know of many cities around the world that aren't um, like actively battling congestion through private car ownership. So this is also an answer to that I can see that a lot of cities are looking to and saying, actually, we want to actively encourage this as well. Yeah, so 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 we have an enabling technology, and we have we have a source of capital. We have a mar- product market fit in the sense that you see usage really exploding in a very short time frame. As soon as you make a product available, people are are really jumping on this product and making uh, making use of it, uh, which appears to be at least initially economically very very positive, very valuable. Um, but yes, in a, that is sort of the the push of micromobility. The pull of micromobility, though, which which wasn't there. I mean, no one was asking for it, but everyone was feeling pain from uh, from a monoculture of automotive uh, uh, options for transport. Uh, only typically these these in, in in North America and some parts of Europe, where really people felt a lot of pain, and and this pain comes in the form of congestion, parking issues. Uh, pollution, which uh, which is is uh, which is more of a a, uh, a regulation concern, but certainly people are unhappy about that. Also, I mean the pain points I always say of of, of the of the motorist are number one congestion, number two the hassles of parking and other unknowable things about you know it's it's just not being able to predict what you what you're able to how you're going to use your life uh, your hours in the day, and it's just having these. These constant demands on your time, which are random and frankly terrifying, when 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 you're stuck in traffic and you can't can't do anything else, um, and and it's the car went from being an object of freedom to being an object of of uh, constraint, if not uh, you know being really terrifying. So uh, and of course beyond that, even more more is the fact that a lot of people are are dying because of accidents or being injured. Uh, the number globally is over a million, I think, uh, maybe even a million and a half. The, U- the U.S. statistic for 2018, for example, has just come out as for over 40,000 people died in traffic accidents. Um, and, right. and and so you, you know you, you have these things and these are in the background, but they create an, an, you know a dissonance. They create a, a, a pain and a stress level that is really you know you didn't have any options, so you just you you just deal with it. But somebody provide you this option again. This is the micro mobility as a as a as a product and service, and suddenly you're you 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 it's delightful. It feels so great and fresh and 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 uh, and, and superior. It's faster often, it's more convenient, it's less costly. And um, it comes in also, at, you know, with car sharing as an option as well, uh, with transit in some parts of the world, which is an option as well. And, and so th- these, these modes, these, these alternatives to, you know, private car, single occupancy car in a city, it's just so much better. And so, it, you know, it, it, that's why I believe it's, it's a, both a push and a pull that's happening, which is causing this resonance and causing this very rapid take up of the of the of the options available. So, um, so the, and on top of that, again, within a very short period of time between 2016 and and now, as we speak in early 2019, we've seen uh, we we've seen these tremendous figures about uh, the the amount of uh, usage and capital, and uh, and and so we're trying to you know. 
we're trying to figure out how to make it continue, how to what what it makes it great, what really makes it uh, uh, sustainable. All right. So why? I mean, you're the you're you you've worked a lot with Clay Christensen, who obviously is the one. Uh, Clayton Christensen came out with the, the concept of disruptive innovation in the first place. Um, and then you're obviously a keen a keen student of his, um, and we're you know you've been studying disruption all your life. Uh, and so for for me, I'm cu- curious as to why you've got so excited about micromobility as a as disru- disruptive force. What what about it is disruptive, um, and and how would you define it? Well, disruption in the, in in the in the way that that Clay defined it back in two thousand uh, actually 1996 over 20 years ago was, um, or is it 90, I forget exactly, between 96 and 98, I don't remember exactly when the book came out. I think it was 90, uh, 97, I guess. Um, the, the, the way he defined it was that it would, uh, it was a, a, a less, perf- less high, the performance of the, of the entry, entry product was less than what the existing uh, median performance of the products that were competing against it. Um, and, and it seemed contradictory that a, a product that had less performance would somehow win in the marketplace. And so if you, if you, the way he, he explained it is that over time, performance for, for a product tends to increase and the performance that people are willing to absorb or the demand for performance tends to increase but at different rates so that the you know if you think about cars they've been growing in their performance for such a long time and consumers at the beginning really wanted to see that improvement very quickly very rapidly you know early cars were very poor in performance i mean in every dimension you can imagine the you know safety and and weather protection and uh, and reliability and fuel economy and you know capacity range anything at all horsepower you can you can define it with a quantity and and plot these numbers and see how how much better the car got over the years but it's it's you know its ability to improve now with with even more horsepower even more uh range even more uh, cup holders, whatever it is you're measuring, it's just so great. But people can't absorb that improvement. They're just saying, "Look, I can't really make use of all that uh, all that power." Even though you know we're seeing bigger and bigger vehicles, m- more and more SUVs, more and more pickup trucks with more and more doors and more and more capacity to tow gigantic vehicles or, or you know, it's, these, these numbers are extraordinary when you look at, the, at, the, at what we're being offered as consumers. And in the meantime, the, the, the thing that happens with the low-end entrant is that it actually proposes not, not to be as good on the prevailing basis of competition, the prevailing questions of how many cup holders do you have in the car or how many, how many you know, cylinders and, and, and turbochargers you have, but rather it competes on a new basis and it's a basis that the incumbents don't really care about. They, they, they think the consumer doesn't care about, but they have, you know, perhaps they should be caring about. So things like, I don't, I, I want to buy miles. I don't want to buy a car. I want to buy a distance or I want to buy a time savings, but I don't care about a box or a piece of metal. And, and so the new product competes on accessibility and convenience and has less 
hassles with parking, has less hassles with insurance, has less hassles with with uh, 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 traffic. And so, whereas the, the the SUV and pickup truck cannot solve the traffic problem, it is traffic. The the new vehicle is actually very very efficient through traffic and will get you there faster when you're sitting in in, in gridlock. So you, you know these ter- these sort of things are what do we call asymmetric competition. Um, in fact, that's where my 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 uh, my website Asymco comes from. Asymmetric competition. It's the contraction of those two words, and and so asymmetric competition is is the way. Uh, almost the David and Goliath concept that the David is the, the, you know, the, the weak alternative, but with, with cleverness, with, with, uh, with a weapon that the, that the, the, the um, Goliath doesn't have. The, The Goliath uses, uses brute force, Whereas the David uses cunning and and cleverness, so this 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 is a biblical story because it is so common in history and and is has been you know visible through millennia and people understand it instinctively and yet it's still very difficult for the incumbent, for the Goliath to to adjust to this environment, um, and so so uh, you know foundational to uh, disruption theory is the notion that. You have to have humility, both as an entrant, but also as an incumbent, to understand and feel the the uh, the way the the way your business might be changing. So, so that that is a that is a metaphor I, I I like to think of is this idea that that you know it's it's the asymmetry of the weak, essentially defeating the strong, and that's that is so. You, you, when you, it's hard for you to see it until, uh, you know, when you're studying cars, you might be looking. Oh, uh, does this mean we should be looking at cheap cars? Should we be looking at at cars made in a different country? Is that is that the asymmetry we're looking for? It's very hard. And, and over over the decades of the auto industry, we have seen sort of the low end in form of Toyotas and Volkswagens becoming successful against incumbents like General Motors or. Or, or the Fords of the day, but that that cycle played itself out, and now the question was, what's the next wave? And this is why I was finding it difficult to find, an, an, a, you know, a really good story there. Would it be from India? When you hop out of that framework and say, wait a minute, what about things which we don't call cars? That's where, yeah. and, and and you don't measure these alternative vehicles. I learned one interesting thing the other day. You know, China makes about 20 to 24 million cars a year. This is one of the largest market for car manufacturing in the world today. It's almost twice as big as the United States. It's hard to believe that, but this is true. China has grown to a huge amount. One thing that we 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 think about, though, in India, India's the number is much, much lower. It's like 4 million cars a year made in India. So it's really much tinier, except if you, in India, people, you know, the, the industry statistics include motorcycles in that count. And if you include motorcycles, actually India is at 24 million. So there's 20 million two-wheelers being made in China, uh, sorry, in India, which are, are are typically not visible. And simply because the world chooses to count four-wheelers and not two-wheelers as transportation, we don't usually get the chance to compare these. And so this is the whole point is like, you spend years and years learning about the car business, but you are, you learn nothing because you're not 
thinking about the miles business or the trip business or the the hours business meaning transportation is all these things it's about saving yeah. time it's about it's about delivering miles it's about bringing people together and that's what people are buying versus what 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 incumbents are selling which is which is metal boxes yeah, so I, I really love that idea of uh, the, 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 you know, you're not selling boxes anymore, but you're actually selling miles. And I thought the, the you know, the, the, the framework that I really like that you've used in the past is the idea of jobs to be done. So I thought, maybe, do, what, how do you think about the job to be done in the, as, as we're thinking about it in this space? Without too, going too far down this, this path of kind of what is really the job to be done, but the, the, the idea of job to be done is that a product uh, or a service or something you purchased isn't really necessarily that which is being sold of what is being sold. So the, the, the old old uh, adage goes like uh, people aren't buying drills, like, you know, hand drills. They're buying holes in the wall. They're buying that which the drill enables or creates. You know, they, they, they want to have... Uh, yeah, I'm not the, buying a coffee. Uh, sorry, I'm not buying a, a coffee. I'm really just buying like a thing so that I can sit in this cafe for an hour. You're buying space. You're buying access to uh, to uh, uh, you're renting space in the bar or or in the cafe uh, and paying for it through coffee. Uh, you know, same yes. thing with a bar. A bar's job to be done is to uh, provide uh, a, a meeting place so people can meet and socialize. And you pay for it with uh, overpriced uh, beer, and <laughs> and, and I, I, you know, I gave this exa- example. Of course, you know it's 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 so obvious to everyone who ever goes to a night to a bar or 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 you know an establishment, even a restaurant. It's like, why am I paying so much when I can I can get beer at the at the supermarket for you know a tenth of this price, or I can buy food uh, in the supermarket for a tenth of what I'm paying in the restaurant for having it prepared. Um, and, and, and the point is, and, and no one objects to this, you know, it's, it's very well understood that it's reasonable to pay, you know, uh, six times as much for a beer in, a, in, a, in an establishment because you're not doing, going there just for the beer. You're going there for company um, uh, and, and, and so on. Yeah. So, so in, in, in the case of, of transportation, first of all, the, you have to understand after 130 years or so, the car has gone far beyond being a purchase. That's more. That's just transportation. Uh, it, you know, bundled with that, you know, utility value. There's there's a lot of other value that people have or perceive to have with a car. You know, they have status. It uh, in a in a world where everybody has a car, it's important to differentiate yourself with your decisions about the car. It's it's also giving you optionality on things like you know, well, I want to visit my 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 you know my relatives, or we want to go on vacation far away. Uh, we want to do things as a family. Therefore, it has to be big enough for all of us to fit in it. Even though you have all this optionality, you don't use it very often. You tend to just drive it to work uh, alone. Uh, you know, even if it is a truck or a minivan or or an SUV, uh, you you know those things that it's also capable of doing. You rarely do. Sometimes never do. You never go on that on that cross country trip that you always thought you might need to do. You, you know, and you bought the vehicle that could do it. Uh, you never really you know carry the, the, a ton of of uh, uh, of of objects in the back of your pickup truck. Um, so the the point is that. 
the, what you really hire the product is you think it's it's a bunch of things, but in reality you use it differently, and you've been you've been conditioned or you've you've kind of convinced yourself that that's what you really need. Is you need this extraordinarily capable vehicle, even though you don't use all of that capability. Um, and so so the job to be done, if you the way I, I sort of here's a thought exercise. Let's let's take two jobs. One is the getting to work, and the other one is showing that I'm I have a great deal of sophistication, um, and and therefore I have good taste. Now, if these are the two of the jobs, and again, there's a few others that are bundled in with a car. Let's take these two others. What if I break them apart? And I said, okay, if I were to offer you um, an Uber subscription that gives takes you to work or run the errands or whatever you need, and you pay for that, you know, let's say a couple of hundred dollars a month, maybe even more than that. Um, and uh, in order to satisfy your prestige requirements, we're going to sell you a fancy Rolex watch. So the the, the, the two things together uh, are, 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 you know, one is, let's say, the add up to the cost of a fancy car, let's say a BMW or something, you know, a high-end vehicle. Um, and so you, 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 com- you combined uh, the two jobs, and you pro- you, but you provided them as, as uh, a bundle of two different objects or two different services. Now, that might be an interesting offer to someone because they, they would like to show up with the fancy watch everywhere they go and de- demonstrate their... their uh, let's say, uh, you know, as I said, sophistication, or and, and yet they have the utility value provided by a subscription. And, um, and so th- this unbundling of the car into one is a service and, and, and then the other part, which is uh, uh, the, the signaling part, is, is an object that you, you know, is, is dedicated to that. Um, then it's possible to imagine we break down the, bu- the bundle of the car into its constituent parts. And walk through the bundle of the car. So I, I conceptually, uh, I think I get it, but but for for listeners who have never heard that term before, what does that mean? So the way the way a purchase of a car is again, you you think at the time of the purchase, and this this is fascinating because people have done job to be done analysis on the car purchase, and you know a couple would go into a, a you know let's say a car dealer, and then they would think that um, you know the 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 let's say the the husband or or. Or, or the partner who who wants a utility, you know, they, they wants a, a a pickup truck, and, and the other partner wants something that is very efficient and and maybe sporty. Um, and the only thing that they can agree on is that they don't want a minivan. So, so uh, you know, either they're going to walk out with a with a with a with a pickup truck or let's say a mini uh, a mini car, a mi- you know, mini Cooper. And and the funny story goes that actually you know during the process of deciding what to buy, of course they walk out of the door with a minivan, because it is the one thing that actually they're willing to compromise on because they're looking for something, and since they only need to get one object, they end up with the one object that doesn't actually fit either one of their desires, but they can, somehow it's the only thing they can agree on. Um, and and so the 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 logic here though is that within that object is is a bundle of things. So obviously. Whenever you decide what 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 you're going to get, you're going to think about all these scenarios. Well, we, again, we need to carry seven people once in a while. We need to go to grandma's house, and she lives 200 miles away. And and I get this all the time when I when I when I point out the fact that 90% of all trips taken in the United States are less than 20 miles, and uh, 99% are less than 60 miles. 
And so it's, it's, a, it's amusing to think of that, the, you know, the necessity for a vehicle like an, a Tesla with a very long range battery, which costs a huge amount of money, and you're never going to deplete it unless you go on these very long trips or you, you don't charge it for weeks on end, even though you have your own garage. So, you know, how do people really think about this? They think about buying objects with what are called Six Sigma or one in 10,000 probability of it, something happening. And why do we get to this point of, of saying, well, we need, the, uh, we need an object that is bundled, has bundled so many, uh, so many different uh, unlikely scenarios that we we are willing to pay a premium for for the probability that of something that is extremely unlikely. Another way to sure. think about it is that maybe just from a utility point of view, buy a car. Let's say it's on as the average is in the United States about thirty five thousand dollars, and you think of that as all the trips that I'm going to need for the next let's say five years, and so you know before costs of maintenance and everything else goes out of control, I'm going to be able to take, you know, uh, pay, pay, uh, get this vehicle is going to pay me back in the form of trips. So how many trips am I going to need to, to uh, take in order for me to justify this $35,000 purchase? So this is what I mean by bundling. The way an album is a bundle of songs and you really only need the one hit that, that everybody enjoys but instead you get the really crappy versions of the Alanis Morissette covers and all that sort of stuff attached to it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> when, when, when Steve Jobs introduced the iTunes store and you were able to buy a song for 99 cents, it was very, very disruptive because the, the, in, the, the music industry had been selling single songs for about $20, which is what a CD cost. And most people didn't need the songs that weren't the hit. Maybe they would listen to one or two songs that were, everything else was kind of like, mm, eh, it's, it's all right, but yeah. you know, who wants to listen to the same? Today, no one really does that anymore. They, they would listen to an album over and over again from, from uh, beginning to end. But the, the, the thing is that, uh, the thing is that the car is like that. In the many ways, you're using it for commuting and the chances are, that you're not going to use it for all those other very, very demanding jobs that you think you want, but they're simply there as 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 extra baggage that you have to carry with you all the time. So you're carrying... And in a, some ways, that's because you don't have any other options, right? Like, may, the, what are the alternatives? So we end up with... Exactly. This is a real... So it's a puzzle in a way because we end up with a question. It, there's a paradox. There is clearly... Um, it's not a rational behavior to always use a very heavy, over, over, over-serving vehicle for for mundane tasks. Um, it's like having the analogy in computing is like you know we have phones and laptops and tablets and and desktops even sometimes. But what if I told you that all of your computing is to be done in with a mini computer? And you, maybe people don't remember what those were, but they were essentially refrigerator-sized computers. They were, you know, in a departmental, uh, like the floor of a building was was using one of these computers. So you have the R&D department or the marketing department, as opposed to, and these were, by the way, as opposed to a mainframe computer, which was, a, was served an entire building. So one, one computer for the entire building, and then we ended up with one computer for the entire floor. But this being a, a computer that was the size of a closet, 
Imagine your house really dedicating all your computing to a closet-sized computer that would sit in the closet, would have the fans on, uh, you know, using a lot of energy. And you say, well, you know, no, that's how I want to do my computing. That's a, where we are today with cars. We end up with getting a computer that's far too powerful, far too energy intensive, far too heavy, far too big for, the, for what is really what the iPhone does. What we use this computer in the closet for is simply sending text messages to each other, using Facebook and browsing once in a while, maybe email, and that's it. We don't need that that much power and capacity and certainly not that much energy to do those tasks. And over time, we've developed alternatives. And sure enough, because they're so easy to adopt and, and convenient, we end up using the phone for a lot of the tasks that many computers and desktop computers and laptop computers have been used for. And so this is the this is the paradox is yes, we can see that it's obvious today that we 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 shouldn't buy big computers to do simple tasks, but we don't think about it that way with cars. Right. And so the appeal here uh, of, of micromobility is that you actually are very liberated by the option of only using a very simple vehicle for very simple tasks. And over time, uh, you so so the, uh, the the answer, by the way, to the pickup truck truck problem is to rent one when you need it. You use a small, convenient vehicle, and you know you don't worry you have to deal with parking or anything else. And when you do need to bring home a Christmas tree, or you do need to move your house from one you know place to another, you 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 rent a vehicle. Um, and 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 that's 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 logical. That is that is very understandable and yet we somehow feel like we need we need all this power even though we don't use it and and that's that's one of the things i think the reason again is because over over time we the the industry the car industry has been very good at actually bringing prices for very large things to a reasonable level and financing has helped and 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 although the prices aren't that cheap but it's certainly they're made accessible through financing and other means um, and distribution, and now we have we have this mentality that we, yeah, well, it's it's normal to buy an enormous vehicle to do very mundane things. Yeah, absolutely. So if we're thinking about it, right? Because it, to your point, you've got this very blunt tool for which we use everything, but. But, you know, one of the things that we've talked about a lot on the show is this idea of there's a what they call the log normal distribution. That sounds very fancy for effectively most trips are short trips. And at the moment, we use pretty blunt tools for this. So do you want to talk through this idea of what a log normal distribution is? Why and why does it matter in terms of the total size of the addressable market? I, I, yeah, let me try to do it. Let me try to do it without using the, the terminology. But imagine imagine if I were to ask you, and I said this briefly earlier, that 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 90% of all trips are less than 20 miles. But if I were to ask you, well, what percentage of all trips is less than 10 miles or less than five miles? And and you'd realize that actually it's still a majority of trips are less than 10 miles. And so so when you're looking, and that's the United States, if you look at other countries, the, the, uh, the, the distances traveled are, are even shorter on average. Um, and then you you realize, wow, you know, why do I have a a vehicle that is so big and so powerful and so fast and has so much range in order for me to travel such short distances, which I could have done through through a very you know, admittedly walking is the only option for many, which is 
not very good for more than, let's say, half a mile. But if, if, if there was an alternative, you might actually consider using it, right? And then this, this is where the car has been so good at being, becoming ubiquitous that we've kind of removed all the other options. And, and so the, the, what, this, what this brings to bear is that when someone tells you the average trip distance is something like, let's say, five miles, average doesn't give you a good feel for it because that implies that half the trips are less than that and half the trips are above that. But that's not how trips are, are usually uh, uh, arranged. Uh, the trips are always more, you know, skewed is the word towards zero. In other words, skewed towards the shorter distances than they are. So the average is not the midpoint. In fact, uh, the the most common trip distances are far far below average. If you can think about this and get this clear in your head, it's very it's a bit very tricky thinking because mostly we think about the bell curve or we think about the normal distribution, which is like when, when the most common thing is the peak of the curve and then everything above it and below balances out and it's a symmetric, it's a beautiful curve. And all that, you know, you'd think that way is, is, is kind of, uh, it's a simple way to think about an average is kind of the midpoint, but that's not the case with trips. Trips are so short and so frequently short that, that, we we don't have the, even the language to think about it. We use averages as an example, but it's it's it, you know we have to use other words like median and mode, which are statistical terms. I, I, I'm not going to be able to <laughs> re-educate everyone on this question of of how to think about um, statistics of of trip distances. But suffice it to say that um, the the you know the shortest. The short, uh, uh, the short trip is the most common trip, and it's in fact so common that that uh, if you if you were to take the zero to five miles, uh, uh, there are there are trillions and trillions of miles that are that are in trips that are very short, and we just need to focus on these very short trips and ask the question: How many of these can be switched out of cars into something else? Because if we do only that's actually solving a very material pain point, right? Based on based on everything that we've just discussed, I think the other part of this as well that's really interesting is that actually the the money in terms of how much you would pay on a per mile basis absolutely skews towards short trips as well. And the example that we we gave right when we were talking in that episode um, about the total addressable market is the fact that a New York taxi you'll pay eight or nine or ten dollars a mile. You'll take that taxi at a very expensive rate to the airport where you mm-hmm. hop on a plane and then you hop on a plane and you fly 10,000 miles and that might only cost you, you know, the taxi might have cost $100 to get you to the airport and then you yeah. fly 10,000 miles and it's only cost you, you know, uh, oh. a couple of hundred dollars. Yeah. So, so th- th- that's right. The, the shorter trips are more expensive ones on a per mile basis. And the... Um, uh, the, 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 even in scooter, for example, usually to to rent a vehicle to get started on on a journey of any kind, whether it's a service or 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 a a um, well, you know, someone someone driving you, you you have a, a steep upfront cost, and then uh, the first half mile costs as much as the next ten miles, and this is reflected again in the distribution because whoever's pricing miles realizes that. That is the optimum way to get paid, and and so and so the the um, this is why a scooter costs a dollar to start and you know 
15 cents a minute thereafter. Um, it, it most likely people will only take it for a few minutes and then they'll end up still spending as much as if they took it for half an hour. Well, not quite, but you see my point. Um, and yeah. so th- th- this, this idea that, that the short distances are more, more expensive also means that when you think about the dollars being spent in transportation, the, uh, there's, a, there's a definite uh, majority of dollars are spent in the short distance trips. So even though there are people taking 100-mile trips, when you look at the short distance trips, there's more money there in the first 10 miles than there is in all the miles above 10. If, if you can imagine yep. that, right? And, and this is this is why um, it's possible. This is more for the purpose of understanding the business model. It's possible for you to create a business in the zero to 10 mile space that is so profitable and attractive that um, it, it, it sucks the it sucks the money out of the alternative, which is the car, pushing the car to be relegated to the long distance only trips which it does very well, but if it only has long-distance trips, the, the pie of, of dollars that's available to it is shrunken to the point where there's actually very little investment possibilities, right? And this is why the, the way you eat, and this is, a, this, uh, this is the disruption principle, is like you start at the low end, but it's the most attractive at the beginning, and that allows you to, to prosper and grow and then eventually those low-end companies get good enough to handle the high-end business. And so the low-end, if I may you know, use the scooter as an example, imagine a scooter evolving, evolving, and evolving. So it's no longer a scooter. It's, it's, you know, then it's going to have three wheels, and it's going to have ABS, and it's going to have a, a seat. Uh, and, and you, know, you can see these things already shipping now. You have little scooters with seats on them. You have scooters with yeah. bigger wheels. You have scooters with... Uh, with more power on them, then you have scooters potentially looking more like bicycles um, or or sit down bicycles, like maybe some kind of really fancy, uh, uh, you know, sit down vehicle. Uh, then you get a roof on it, and then it you know it sprouts all these attachments and all these, <laughs> and pretty soon it starts to look like a car. And I don't mean to yep. say that it is a car, but it's, it starts to be more capable to the point where it's like it's like a golf cart. And then, and then what? And, and, and then it's starting to suck up the, you know, not just the three-mile trips. It's starting to take the five-mile trips. It's starting to take the 10-mile trips. And then eventually it's like pretty much sitting like in the, in the sweet spot of, of, the, of the automobile where, where yep. it's used for all the big, you know, the, the, the short and the long trips. Now, it, it may be, a, it, it's a fascinating potential where, where the the you know the scooter companies of today become the car companies of tomorrow, um, and and that's 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 the essence of, of a disruptive uh, entry is that you, you, it doesn't feel like it in the beginning because they're they're not classified they're not measured as as competitors but eventually they become that just like the iPhone again <laughs> the iPhone with its companion the iPad are in many ways good enough to do 80% of the things that a laptop can do. And and for years and years, I've argued the case that this will happen. And it was very, very hard for anyone to believe me. Um, it, was, it, was, it was, if you said things like this five years ago, it was uh, the subject of extreme violence from, from, from PC advocates 
verbal violence, who would say there's no way that these these pocket uh, you know toys could possibly uh, challenge the might of a, of a PC. Not forgetting, of course, that it was they, the PC, who challenged the the their predecessors as with the toy-like product, which was the original, of course, the original Apple II and the original Commodore and the original uh, uh, even PC, which were not really. Uh, not really capable of doing any any heavy lifting. So th- this is the evolution of disruption. Sure. This is actually a really good time for us to just jump in and thank our sponsor, Joyride. There are countless current and aspiring micromobility fleet operators out there. If you're one of them, then you probably know you've already got what it takes to run a fleet efficiently and profitably. You're doing your research, reading blogs and articles, downloading reports, and listening to this podcast. The metrics from those venture-funded companies are mind-blowing but you wonder how it would look if you focused on your local market. Joyride provides a custom white-label mobile app and scalable backend that allows everybody from a small local operator to transit agencies to launch their own micromobility fleet within weeks. Plus, they have partnerships with all the major manufacturers, so you're guaranteed to have the highest quality hardware when you launch your own bikes and scooters. Here's an example of what a Joyride customer has accomplished. The operator launched with a fleet of 200 electric scooters in their hometown, and within months they were making six figures from the rides, all while competing in a city that already had some of the largest scooter share companies operating. This doesn't even include the additional revenue they're generating through the Joyride advertising platform that allows you to connect your customers with retail partners around the city. Maybe you didn't think you can compete in the micromobility space before. Maybe you thought the market was already controlled by a few giants. Joyride levels the playing field for the operators allowing anybody to succeed with their fleet. Whether you're an independent operator with a desire to launch locally or a transit agency looking to solve the first and last mile for your customers, Joyride helps you find the mobility share solution that works. Start your own scooter and bike share system today. See more at joyride.city. That's joyride.city. It's time to join the global micromobility movement. Mention the Micromobility Podcast and receive your first month free. Thank you to Joe Wright for supporting micromobility. All right. So let's pick up where we left off. The thing that I also found really interesting uh, in one of the earlier episodes we were talking about, Horace, was that you were talking about um, how actually more time is spent on the sub 15 mile trips than on the longer ones. So that log normal distribution of trips, um, actually it's not only trips, it's the, it's the amount of money, as you said, and it's the amount of distance, as you said, but it's also the time. And I'd love to have you kind of explain that a little bit more. Right. So when you think about a market for miles, as I call it, versus a market for vehicles, uh, the the market for miles is can be subdivided into trips and it can be subdivided into uh, time, which which you can obtain by understanding the speed of travel. And uh, you can also, again, do uh, a market for for um, person miles, vehicle miles, which are sort of slightly different uh, in terms of the occupancy question. Sure. And and so so when when I do and, and the market for dollars, which is which is what's spent on the miles, which is you know used to gain time. And so, so you can look at it all different ways. And and the the, the thing about micromobility that's surprising, I think, to most people, it's not just that the, there's a there's an overwhelming number of short distance trips, but the 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 value of those trips 
tends to be higher than, than the long distance trips. And the amount of time spent in short distance trips is, is much more than the time spent in long distance or even medium distance trips. And so when you think about where or how people judge value in terms of what they're willing to spend money on, it, it's it's always you know skewed towards towards the, the what I would consider the low end, but it isn't the low end when you look at the economic value. The other thing about short distance, in particular urban environments, is that these these short trips happen where in economically significant, more economically significant areas of a of a city, you have you have typically lots of. Um, uh, Trips that end in an economic transaction, so there's a there's a there's a you know a, a purchase at the end of it, if you will. Uh, there there have there is more likely to be um, a a you know happening in an area where real estate is very expensive. Uh, so so uh, you you're going to have both the reason to go on a short trip and the place you will go will be a more valuable place. Uh, again, statistically speaking, and I don't, you know, I, I haven't got really global data on this. It's sort of anecdotal right now, but it's it's pretty obvious when you think. Well, let's 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 move on. Actually, it's getting a little in the weeds now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, that's okay. Well, look, hey, one of the one of the things that one of the things that we're really seeing with the rise of this, you know, look, we've talked about sort of what's was what's been the enabling technology, and then why is this um, why is this interesting especially for those shorter trips. But most of those trips happen in cities, as you know, as, as we've seen with the urban, uh, an increasing number of people um, moving into urban environments. What, how, do you, how do we see cities responding to this? Like, what can we learn, um, and what can we learn from history about how they've adapted to new forms of transport in the past? Yeah, this is a difficult question to answer in the general sense because it, it, there are literally thousands of, governments for cities. Uh, there are thousands of cities and each is governed individually. So there's a there's there's also obviously layers of government on top of the council or the city level, which influence decisions down into the city. Um, you have therefore um, local, regional and 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 state and perhaps even international regulations. Um, and the, the problem with, with looking at the world through that lens of regulation is firstly, you have really thousands of little lenses making up the whole. So it's very hard to generalize. But secondly, you have a, a set of re- regulations which have been developed uh, over many, many decades. And the, their development was not something that was predictable when the car was young. A lot of the laws we ended up with in terms of things like how to do how to do street design, how to do intersections, how to how to think about speed limits, how to think about parking. But the the so the point is that it varies. It varies widely. If you drive in parts of Europe, it's very different than if you drive in parts of the U.S. or Asia. Um, so. Therefore, I, I, I don't want to suggest that, you know, you drop onto the planet within a number of months, uh, millions of new micro vehicles, powered vehicles, or pedal assist vehicles, as we have today. We had 
several million actually built and de- deployed in the last 12 months, easily, yeah. to a several million. The nine bought 1.5 million. That's one company. And then we have Germany alone, 900,000 uh, 900, e-bikes. Now, when you think about, okay, what is the market? What is potentials you have? My estimate is that there's about 20,000 different cities that will pass regulation on this matter. 20,000. There are there will be over 100 million of these vehicles in the next five years deployed. Therefore, they'll affect uh, several billion people, uh, which are living in those 20,000 cities. So if, for us to say how cities will behave, it's very difficult. In fact, we'll see cities kilometers apart from each other, like in the Bay Area, San Francisco versus Oakland, approaching this question completely differently. And even yeah. the suburbs of one city. So you have uh, you have a, a, you know, a, a, a normative behavior in San Francisco and something completely different in the, in the suburbs, in the peninsula, south of San Francisco, for example. It's really different in San Jose, which is at the other end of the bay, um, and, and many other communities in between, as you can imagine. So the, the, uh, this is why it's, it's difficult to generalize. But I will say this, that the um, history of how we come to a consensus on what is, uh, what is acceptable in terms of law, in terms of behavior, in, ter- in terms of, you know, even questions like, should we pay for parking? Should we tax for congestion? Should we um, provide, uh, you know, super, super highways in the middle of a city, as the U.S. tends to do, but now tends not to do? And and so you, you have this, this, this very... Um, you know the, the, this question of how did we come to this point? Uh, and my my me, I've read a book or two on, on on this subject of the history of how infrastructures were built, and um, it's pretty clear that there's uh, there's the same process as we see in the consumer adoption of technologies, which is an S curve. So you have early adopters of what comes to be the the uh, the the majority behavior. Those early adopters. Sure are followed by, or you first are called innovators, and you have uh, early adopters, and you have early majority, then late majority, then, then laggards. So this is a typical nomenclature for these segments of population. When, when, when you see something introduced, whether it's an idea or behavior, a technology, and so on. And so when we look at micromobility, I expect it to follow an S-curve. So we'll have some cities which absorb, you know, accept it and some cities which will be very late in accepting it and will resist acceptance. The, the only question is then is how fast does this, does this S-curve go from zero to 100%? Um, and so from the impossible to the inevitable, as I say. Uh, so we have, you know, at the beginning, zero people and zero cities um, permitting this. And at the end, you have 100% of the cities permitting this. If you believe that the technology is going to become universal, then you do expect it to go to 100%. And again, you, this is not, this is what oh, I struggle with all the time when, when I've seen in my own life, society go from from zero acceptance of an idea to 100% acceptance of that idea. 
And that that happening within a you know a few years, um, and so literally people changing their minds 180 degrees on something fundamental, and they all agree in the beginning that is wrong, and at the end they all agree it is right, or vice versa. And so this sure. is not this is not uncommon, and and you see it in in, in terms of the laws being written or all kinds of things. Um, and you can and, see and, it as well in the way that the infrastructure gets built. I mean, you think about it that cycle lanes haven't been. Well, I'm just thinking specifically in terms of like, you know, how will, how will infrastructure start to look? We did a whole episode on the Dutch and the fact that they've been building this um, this this cycling infrastructure since the 1970s. Right. But it's you know it it's uh, that's that's really like it's driven by a change in mindset before you go and change infrastructure and then you know, right. everything but- flows on from there. But what, what I want to leave you with is one thought about this, because it's not, you start looking at necessarily, so the question is, how do you measure adoptions? You might say things like, well, are they building cycle lanes or are they building, you see, you've seen the last decade of huge growth in, in, in cycling allocation to the, you know, of the city streets. Then you have people requesting or demanding, we need separated cycle lanes. Then we need, uh, we need to have uh you know traffic lights that uh, are geared towards cyclists or micromobility and the same uh, stages that that the dutch went through you know we'll see those stages adopted but this is again this is a question of do we me- are we measuring the right thing there's another measurement you can also have is modal share at what point do more and more of the trips in the in a city shift towards micromobility? That's a wonderful measure. That's actually been consistently measured. Uh, modal share is available for hundreds and hundreds of cities, um, and it's usually split between walking, driving, public transit, and perhaps motorcycles. Um, and buses, so or or you know maybe transit is split into different kinds of modes. Um, so you have we have this data, but the one thing one thing I do want to point out is that there's one almost invisible but much more powerful force, and that's the force of parking. Parking is 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 um, is a, is a, a very valuable uh, subsidy to the car. Parking, uh, the assumption that there should be parking on the street, that there should be parking in buildings, that there should be parking at workplaces. This assumption is not, it's not some sort of law of nature that there should be such a thing. It was, it was made a law uh, of man and it was a made, made a law or, or sometimes more, more uh, forcefully than others. Um, very recently, uh, the idea, in fact, that uh, you know Apple Campus, for example, has to have a huge amount of space allocated to parking is is by law. To the extent that governments change these regulations and say things like, "Well, from now on, a building must be built without parking," if that if that flips, if that formula flips to from saying you must have parking to to you must not have parking, and this is a very simple thing to measure. So that new developments and existing parking facilities are actually uh, re- redeveloped into new uh, into new use cases, and it's you can see it in New York where parking lots. No one wants to if you if you're a if you're owner of a parking lot, somebody could come and give you literally hundreds of millions of dollars for that parking uh, parking lot. Why would you want to keep running a parking lot? Uh, someone's yes. going to put up a skyscraper there. Uh, it's it's. 
the, the value of that land, the value of one story, one car starts to look like, you know, the value of a hundred apartments uh, because you stack them up on top. And so this is becomes really perverse. And, and so so the the incentives will be there. I'm not saying that the change in behavior will be because suddenly people will get religion about parking and and and, and flip the 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 formula from uh, requiring it to uh, to banning it but rather the money will start to play a strong hand in particular you know real estate development will 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 start to grab that land it will start to grab these parking spots away uh, because simply the seller will make a lot of money doing so and increasingly the on street parking will be again grabbed for other allocations would be they you know uh, uh, taxi lanes, or or if there's some sort of self-driving vehicle lanes, uh, if there'll be certainly transit lanes, and of course micromobility lanes. So you're much better off taking a piece of the of the street that's now filled with with storage of cars and allocating to something else. So even even micromobility parking itself, which needs to be increased. So this is what I would. I would try to track and measure in the city. Others have attempted to do so. So uh, measuring the allocation of of land in a city to the car, meaning lanes for 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 driving and uh, and and spaces for parking, and you you start to add up this this enormous volume of parking and and, and realize, hey, that's trillions of dollars of real estate, and someone owns this. Someone will be wanting to sell it. And this is why I think tracking parking is the best way to see how a city is going to evolve into a, um, as let's say, at least a multimodal city versus a car-only city. I, I, would, I would look at parking. Excellent. Okay. Well, and, and the other thing as well I wanted to talk through, so we had two episodes. One was uh, with Chris, Dr. Chris Cherry, who's at the University of Tennessee. Uh, who had looked at the environmental implications of, of uh, electric two-wheelers um, and in specific sort of micromobility devices as they had arisen in China in the, in the 2000s and then into the 2010s. Um, and understanding from, from the perspective of what's, the, what's going to be the impact environmentally for micromobility. Um, this is a, and yeah. Talk about that quickly and then I'll go into the, the other, the I other need aspects to, of it as well. I need to build this into my next keynote talk, if you will. Um, so so I, the first keynote talk, which we're going to hopefully release soon from, from, from California, um, was about the, you know, the market for miles, urbanization and the market for miles. This was kind of, you could, you could subtitle it that way. And then, um, from that view of the world through the through through a market for miles, you you can start to think about modal modal competition, and you can start to think about mo, uh, you know mile substitution and multimodality. But what I would do next would be to start to look at the environmental impact. Um, again, I don't suggest that you should convince people of micromobility because of of what it does for the environment, but but rather that that's going to be a consequence. Of of the 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 utility, the uh, the the reduced cost and the increased um, speed, increased flexibility and accessibility of transportation. That's what the primary value of this is. So it's going to be about making uh, making a breakthrough in in transportation for the better. The um, uh, from you know from a value point of view. 
As a consequence, though, what we'll see is because these are so much more efficient miles than those by single, single occupancy vehicles, because of that, uh, the more miles we flip away from the car, the more we accelerate the decarbonization of the planet. And the, um, the decarbonization rate, there is, a, there is a likely rate out there, you know, based on switching of fuels, uh, going to more efficient EVs versus uh, uh, internal combustion and so on. And then, you know, capturing it through, through renewables. All of that has already been analyzed exhaustively by multiple, multiple people and agencies. Um, but what, what I'd like to do is, again, if you look at miles, and we could easily take the 27 trillion kilometers today that are in cars and start to ask, okay, let's see what each trillion kilometer uh, in the low distance and the high distance. By the way, low distance kilometers, again, this is another, uh, another important fact is those short trips are much more damaging than the long trips because you're driving slower, you're driving more likely stop uh, with more stops and therefore stop and go. So the efficiency of the internal combustion engine is actually far worse for the short trips than it is while it's, you know, going at a fairly high rate of, of speed, you know, at, at a more efficient setting for the, for, the, for the engine. And so you see that in the MPG rating or miles per gallon. Uh, well, you know, the miles per gallon of highway miles is much better than that of city yes, miles. Absolutely. And so flipping those short distance miles back into, uh, you know, not just EV, but micro EV, uh, then you're starting to look at efficiency gains you know, an EV may, may, I'm going to guess here, may say, you know, be twice as efficient or even three times as efficient as as internal combustion in terms of converting, uh, you know, joules uh, into motion, uh, the chemical energy and the fuel into into kinetic energy of transport. But if you if you look at it from a micro mobility point of view, and you you know you're dealing with a few zeros more efficiency. In other words, hundreds times more efficient. And I'm gonna be I have to be careful about this analysis. There's there are several sources for measuring this: how many joules per kilometer per kilogram. Um, and this you know, but but it, it's the famous statement by Steve Jobs, which he made in the late uh, 70s, early 80s, when he said that Apple was interested in making um, a bicycle for the mind, he cited a scientific uh, American article from 1973, which which measured the efficiency of uh, locomotion of various animals uh, and and amongst them was 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 a man walking, but uh, the man wasn't very efficient relative to some other species, including uh, horses and fish and and birds of some kind. You know, the the the, the condor he cited as being the most efficient uh, form of transport, if you will, as as a as a as an organism. And when man is given a car, his efficiency actually drops. Uh, because you know he he's now moving he's now moving the machine as well as himself so he's burning much more energy to get around so the taking four thousand pounds to move what is effectively two hundred pounds right yeah yeah so so the, so so like generally generally the bigger the 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 bigger the animal the more efficient it is 
Um, so, and the more legs it has, the more efficient it is. So, they, you know, this this beautiful log log graph, which you know has as the worst offender or the least efficient, I would say, was you know rodents, mice, and insects, and things like that, which had to burn a lot of energy given their mass to go certain distances. And then you had man, and then what he said is man on a machine on a on a bicycle was way off the scale in efficiency because using that particular machine not the not the ones that burn fuel but the the bicycle it gave him so much mechanical leverage and it was such a such an efficient design that it overtook all the other species on the planet and then some it was by far the most efficient mode of transport. And he said, this is what we do. We make efficient tools for uh, for the mind. So just like in the case here, a bicycle improves the efficiency of, of walking. There was a wonderful metaphor he used. Um, but my, my point is that if you think about micromobility in that context, um, it's it's slightly less efficient than a bicycle because it's heavier a bit and it's got to have uh, you know an electric motor. But it's of that magnitude in terms of improved efficiency is way, way better than a car. So when you when you measure these things, and again, the measurement was joules per kilogram per kilometer. When you look at this and you 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 say, OK, we will reduce the amount of energy needed to make all these miles happen or these kilometers happen. And therefore, what does that do to the amount of carbon that's needed to deliver those miles? Then we can calculate exactly for every card or every trillion kilometers that we flip. Uh, from from internal combustion to micromobility, just wh- how many tons of carbon will be saved? Um, and not only that, it was probably in the millions of tons, actually, perhaps billions. I don't even know. I haven't done the math. But when you, when you start looking at that and say, well, what, is, what are the targets out there? What are the targets for climate change? What are the tar- targets for reducing the impact on the environment and reducing climate change? And we can make an, a, a, you know, a pretty clear case that depending on the rate of growth of micromobility, that we will accelerate the decarbonization, perhaps significantly so, and maybe to the point where it's the most important factor in 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 that uh, in that global story. Um, I haven't I can't make that claim now. I need to look at the numbers and uh, and and I think it's a simple calculation overall. However, since we know roughly the efficiency of internal combustion and we know the efficiency of uh, of micromobility modes. Yeah, absolutely. Well, certainly for, for me, as I was looking at this space, the thing that I got the most excited about is I've always been thinking about if you if you want to rapidly decarbonize transport, what's the way to do that? And that's how I had originally ended up at Uber because I thought autonomous and electric cars were going to be the thing that would they do, do. That. They do improve quite a bit. I mean, the, they what... will, but absolutely, it's not going to be that you know it doesn't have that order of magnitude more efficiency that a micromobility. Offers. There's two things, two things that 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 micromobility kind of doubles down on. Number one, it's much more efficient per passenger trans, you know, kilometer. Uh, number number two, uh, it's it's much faster to convert. And so so not only does it deliver a bigger impact, you know, because you know relative to even a, a four wheeled EV. Um, so so instead of you know improving it by three, you improve it by thirty. Let's approximately let's say this. Sure. Um, then, then in not terms only, of like the unit per kilometer traveled 
of a, an electric scooter or the, the, the jewels the, yeah like the, a, uh, an internal combustion car right like so you you're consuming much much less energy to transport a person for for one kilometer and by, by this by this measure of the, i'm using joules in in the english units they're they're called btus or Br- british thermal units which are measures of energy and so when you think about uh, the, the, the number of joules necessary to transport a person. You go from, let's say, you know, uh, tens to, 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 to single digits and maybe even uh, fractions of a digit. And so you, you're seeing this huge improvement. And th- don't forget that even if it's an electric vehicle, those joules that it consumes have come typically from a fuel burning process. So we're still using a lot of coal. Uh, we're still using a lot of natural gas to generate electricity globally. And and to the extent that that can be converted to renewable, that's great, but you're still needing resources to do that that, uh, generation and you're still needing resources in the form of land and and, and solar panels and transmission lines and a lot of extra extra, uh, work to deliver those those units of energy to that uh, very heavy vehicle. So first of all, you're just using a lot less energy. And secondly, this is more crucial actually, is that the rate of conversion of miles driven with internal combustion to electric or shared isn't as fast as the rate of conversion of those miles to micro. And this is why uh, when you look, when, when I did a comparison uh, for the keynote, I compared Lyft and, and Uber rates of growth in terms of cumulative uh, trips versus Lyman and Uber, and, uh, sorry, Lyman and Bird. And you're seeing Lyman and Bird just going so much faster. And now... Um, Grin as well in South America, it's reached a million, sure. a million rides faster than 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 even those other uh, Lyman and, and and Uber early movers. So we're seeing we're seeing the, this ability to to uh, deliver trips much more quickly. And again, I think and this is what my you know if you do any analysis on the global car fleet and you ask, okay, how many cars are in the world? Well, the answer is about 1.2 billion. How many of those cars are going to be electric and when? How many of those cars are going to be used in a shared environment and therefore be more 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 efficiently used? All of these numbers are have certain growth rates, but they're not as fast as micromobility will be uh, or already is. Um, we're seeing eight year, nine years on uh, the car the the car sharing businesses are reaching ten billion trips, but it took it took eight years, uh, and that's ten billion out of twenty seven trillion. So it's it, it, you know, and that's by the way, uh, trips and miles a little bit. You have to maybe multiply by a, sure, a small sure, sure, factor, sure. but you see what I'm I'm getting. It's, it's it's orders of magnitude. So the the point is that micro mobility has those t- two things going for it. And so when you mu- multiply them and ask, well, how quickly can we convert the twenty trillion miles that need to be converted? First of all, I think the five five trillion kilometers. Sorry. Five trillion kilometers that are addressable because they're short distances, those can probably be converted within 10 years. But if you were to ask how quickly we can convert the long distance uh, kilometers to, to uh, electric, it's going to take a lot longer. And simply because cars are very, uh, very slow to be developed, very slow to be, to be deployed, and very slow, therefore, to in terms of their total life cycle. I'll give one, one data point on this. Just today, the data came out that, or the announcement came out that Volkswagen 
will cease development of internal combustion engines by 2025. This is a claim they make. They may they may they may go beyond that, but in in another in six years they'll stop development. But that doesn't mean they'll stop selling. They're just we're not going to put any more R and D into into new uh, internal combustion. But they'll probably still produce them to 2035. And those cars made in 2035 are going to be on those roads, on our roads for another 15 to 20 years. So that we're talking about 2055. 50. So 2055 yeah. is when the last Volkswagen uh, will will see will you know will be taken off the road with an internal combustion engine. So you're dealing with 50 year cycles here. In in micro mobility. In, in months, months, and and things change. Things change dramatically. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, I just go back to the story that limes on version eight or nine or ten of their scooters and their own. Yeah, it's, it, I used to think that micro mobility is going to go on the one year cadence, the same as a, as a smartphone. So we're going to see a new version of a scooter from every company that that operates them every year. You know, and that made sense. It was sort of reasonable. And these would be big changes too, not some sort of like face you know, facelift. It would be some fundamental, you know, fundamental architectural change in the vehicle every year. And it's happening faster than that. Um, it's happening faster than that because the vehicles only last in, the, uh, on, in use for like a month. You know, people thought they would last for three months, but they're lasting a lot less. So, so more or less, they have an opportunity to deploy a whole new fleet every well, few months. To, because otherwise the unit economics get very, uh, get very messy very quickly. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Well, you know, it, maybe it's not sustainable to they'd want to have a more durable vehicle. But even so, there's no one who can imagine that a that a um, um, a micro vehicle is going to be on the road for for you know decades. Uh, in fact, if you, you you can look at you can see the same thing with taxis. If you look at a taxi fleet, uh, let's say a New York taxi, I I, I remember first time I ever rode in a in a New York taxi. This is this this is me in the taxi, right? So I'm asking the driver, so how many times do you have to change the brakes on this thing, uh, or you know how many times do you have to do an oil change? Because you know I was just naive and young, but I was like, literally they have to do these maintenance jobs much more frequently, and the whole vehicle is is scrap in like a year or so maybe yeah, two okay. maybe two that's a normally a 10 to 15 euro cycle in in the hands of a consumer in use as a fleet vehicle because it's used 24 7 um it's going to be burned out you know completely you know uh, uh sold off and, and scrapped in about a year so you know and over that time it'll do you know 100,000 200,000 um easily uh, uh miles uh taxis in germany are put out of out to pasture if you will usually they're sold uh after 400,000 uh kilometers um right i think that's the figure yeah so so you know th- that that doesn't happen you know, in 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 ten years, it happens in a couple of years. So that's why when you look at fleets vehicles, they're going to be uh, rapidly evolving. You'll be able to change them quickly. You'll be able to deploy them quickly, and you're going to be able to then evolve them quickly, right? Um, and and that's that's key to um, to changing uh, the efficiency number and uh, and the adoption rate. Well, there's one part in there that I wanted to talk about as well, which is um, one of the episodes we had was with uh, Dr. Winston Kwan, who's at the University of Edinburgh. And he talked about the democratization or um, the democratization of transport through micromobility. 
Um, so I thought maybe we'll, I'd love to hear your thoughts on on um, how how do you see that happening? How does um, micro mobility actually become a democratizing force in terms of being able to get people um, yeah. access to mobility? Kwana made some interesting points about the fact that, and this has been also I've heard from other folks in the in the city and urban urbanization planning um, that you have you have transportation dependencies that are are, are created where where communities because they built the infrastructure without alternatives, so you only you don't have buses or or, or transit or or cycling. People are dependent on the car, and if if the economy of that region begins to decline, it it actually it it is um, accelerated because there are really you 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 know you you have this car dependence. And Detroit is a case in point where where you you had a a uh, sort of an economic ghost town created because of the uh, dependency on 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 a single mode. Most people focus on the. On the industrial collapse, but there's also sort of a, a civil a, a collapse of 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 uh, the way people people might find alternatives to the industry that they were saddled with, um, and and so you know, let's not get into into the causes of Detroit, but the the problem is that micro so the problem is with the car that it it, it comes along with a lot of baggage, it comes along with with this this need for for massive infrastructure and very costly to maintain infrastructure so you have to Absolutely. deal with, with potholes and and signage and plowing the the roads if it's snowing uh the, the there's there's you know landscaping you have to cut grass all these other things around the the, the infrastructure it's which are big. quite the other thing as well is that it's oftentimes very high speed, so you've got a lot of highways and that results. The, 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 and the weight of the vehicle is the most important determinant on the wear and of the surface of the road, which then, of course, also the vibrations and all these other aspects of it, which cause also bridges to have um, finite lives, which which then need to be replaced. And when you have thousands of bridges in a in a in, a, in an economy, you you see the impact in, in infrastructure costs. Um, and so you know, and you deal with that with taxation. You deal with that by by charging uh, usually um, fuel taxes to pay for the roads and the infrastructure. But again, if a community starts to decline in in uh, in in its economy. Fewer taxes are collected. The infrastructure, you know, uh, is 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 uh, corroding faster, and so you end up with with even more reasons to flee and even more reasons why businesses will not uh, settle there. So the the problem is then it's it's great on the way up. Uh, the there's a virtuous cycle of infrastructure creating opportunity, creating uh, the the. You know the malls and the the, the big box stores and, and 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 you know having these these massive interchanges between highways has as locations for businesses, but it works in reverse very viciously, and so if 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 you start to see a decline, then you create these massive ghost areas, not just ghost towns, but ghost uh, you know districts, and. Um, the point about micromobility again is that because it's suited at a much on a much smaller scale, so you you have the potential to to create 
alternatives more easily. And, and, and again, I, I'm not the best spokesperson for this because you, you, you know, I've I've read very eloquent defense of this idea of making um, uh, cities into pedestrian-friendly or walkable cities, which which are uh, you, you create a, a a wonderful atmosphere for families, even though you don't have the uh the the mansion on a on a on an acre of land uh sure. it, 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 it's this this idea of having a uh a much more holistic and cohesive uh, urban urban um environment um i think micro to me that you know those arguments are all very very powerful but I, I'm focused on micromobility, and I think it, it it is consistent with this philosophy of urban uh, downsizing, and it uh, it creates more more a more humane, if you will, a more humanistic view of of the city. Um, I noticed, by the way, and this is a bit of an anecdote that that uh, there are mall designs now in the U.S. Maybe it's already been several years where they create fake town centers. Um, so you you drive yeah. to a mall, you park, and it's it's essentially a, an area that that has a bit of a walkable. It's outdoors, but you have you have these uh, walkways and um, and and stores as you as if you were in an old town. But it's completely built as an artificial f- fake kind of. Um, uh, uh, walking city, and uh, to to you know, people drive far to get to it, and then they enjoy being there, and then they drive back to where they came from. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's, it's it's I've seen these in Texas, in uh, in Austin. Yeah, when I lived in the Middle East, we had these as well. They were uh, it was it was like the the place to go. It was yeah, if you want to have a cup of coffee, you know, people don't like to have uh, a drive-through for coffee. And, and the whole point of a coffee shop is to have this ability to sit down and interact with other people. Even to stand in line is kind of considered something of a of a of a, of a, an amusement, right? Just you know, stand in line to get your coffee and. Um, and so people crave this interaction, crave this this uh, ambiance, and they crave this this walkability. Uh, and so you have to, uh, you know, artificially create it. In, in you know, Las Vegas is the same way. You know, you have these mini towns around casinos which are walkable, but uh, but it's very difficult to get between one island of, of a casino to another island of a casino. So it's 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 a bit odd to think that we go through such such contortions to in order to get to to what is a natural way to design a you know a city in the first place if you didn't have the car to begin with uh this is how cities have always been the charm of a european city is that you know it was built as a as a walking city and uh it only sort of got the car much much later and and not always harmoniously so anyway um I am really curious what the what the future of cities will look like if they built with micromobility as the prim, as the primary. Yeah, and I think I, I I'm only I'm only going to suggest this as a theorist. I would suggest that what 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 you look at is the history of the car itself and how transformative it was to the city. How it, it caused people to rethink the their how the a city should be, and it, we moved away from from this walkable city into. You know the suburban, you know, and, and urban environments divided, 
uh, and the exurban environments. And then we, we now are sort of moving the other way, back towards having cities that are, that are places that you want to live in. Um, and 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 th- those places are not a natural home for the car again. And so the, 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 this is why, you know, when I begin my talk, I talk about the 7 billion people that are going to live in cities. And what sort of cities are these going to be? Increasingly, then, again, this is about an S-curve, the normative behavior of city planners, of city councils, of, uh, of even the, the, the notions of what is... Uh, what is a good city and what is a bad city. All these will change gradually, but inexorably. And this is why I believe we will get to this point. Maybe it'll take 50 years. I hope not. I may. I, I think it'll be much faster uh, because it'll be so obvious and so in your face. You can't ignore it. Uh, these these vehicles have that ability to sort of like swarm and, 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 and um, if you would try to stamp them out, they'll find a way around it. Uh, around that, it's like the old adage about the internet that it treats censorship as as a as a fault and routes around it, um, and and so in many ways these vehicles. So San Francisco may 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 ban them, but then every every town around them will will have it, and people will be like, well, you know, there'll be a lot of fear of missing out, uh, causing people to go back and and reevaluate their assumptions. Well, that's certainly been a very enlightening take on this uh, on this whole on this whole space, and I certainly hope uh, for for our new listeners here who uh, are joining us and trying to understand what this whole micromobility uh, movement and and, um, and and emergence has been about um, that you've you've got a good overview of of the space. Um, is there anything else you'd like to add, Horace? No, I think you, I think we've we've beaten up on this enough, and. Uh, <laughs> Uh, yeah, no, absolutely. It's it's been uh, it's been great. We should do this um, every year or so. We should sort of reflect back on what we've learned. Yeah, absolutely. Excellent. Well, look, if you uh, if you're interested in finding out more, uh, follow Horace at Asimco on Twitter. That's A S A S Y M C O or me, Oliver Bruce. Um, and be sure to uh, keep track of what we're up to. We're going to be having a uh, new conference uh, for, for micromobility in Europe um, that's coming up and we'll have more to, details to announce about that uh, later in the year. But otherwise, uh, take care and we'll talk to you soon. Thanks. <laughs>